the leadership attributes it to some people say technology, some people say relationships, but it's probably a combination of the two. And what's astounding to me is that the relationship uh, based nature of patient outreach was discounted and really not appreciated um, in the whole planning process. And that's what we do so well, which is build and sustain long-term relationships, which translate to trust. And without trust, we don't get to herd immunity. Welcome to the Shifts Happen podcast. We're your co-hosts, Lucy Whittington and Scott Irwin from High Hand, having conversations about workforce planning and managing flexible teams to see how shifts happen in different circumstances. For us, dynamic staffing is key to having a flexible, engaged, and productive workforce. And we invite you to join us as we talk to people-powered business owners, those working in large organizations, along with commentators and consultants about the future of work and workforce planning. Primary care physicians in the U.S. are not the primary deliverers of the vaccine as they are here in the U.K. Not for one of trying, however, is championed by today's guest, Dr. Deep Shaw. Whereas a significant factor in the UK vaccination success has been achieved through using existing healthcare infrastructure, general practitioners, and primary care networks in particular, in the United States, the reliance has been much more on mass vaccination sites and pharmacies to deliver jabs, as we say in the UK, or shots in the US. In spite of this, primary care physician D is running successful vaccine clinics in Atlanta and championing them as the right long-term approach. His argument is very strongly in the camp that not only do primary care providers already have that right setup, but they have the right staff too that do more than just jab. So hear more about his challenges in scrambling for the same staff and how building in agility is his current mantra. As it would happen, we, we spoke to a, actually another primary care physician in the UK, actually, who in the response to the question of why GPs were leading the vaccine rollout, he effectively said, why wouldn't they? It's the obvious choice given the role they play in, if you will, business as usual vaccinations. The question to kind of open with with you is why, given the fact that primary care physicians deliver you know, the majority of normal vaccinations in the U.S., is the U.S. placing them, if you will, not in prime position, but in some ways not even in second or third? It's the question of the day uh, that has come up every day since we found out that we had effective vaccines. There are obviously significant distinctions between our system in the United States versus the NHS. Particularly, we're a hyper-fragmented medical system in the United States. And over the past decade, there have been new players to the primary care market. You know, if we look at the 1980s and 90s and the U.S., it was mostly primary care clinics doing it all. Um, we still do tens of millions of vaccines every year, but now you have retail clinics, urgent cares, and pharmacies trying to all participate in this effort um, of delivering routine care to patients. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think in this race to vaccinate, um, somehow our voice was omitted uh, from that process. And it looks like the large chain pharmacies got a seat at the table 
and pitched a case um, that they could do it and lead the effort. And perhaps it was just a relic of running out of time. Uh, we just didn't even get a chance to uh, discuss how we par could participate and effectively lead that effort. But it's so decentralized here. You know, there's examples in different states of where primary care, independent practices, independent pharmacies are making really, really significant gains in the area. But I don't think that those have trickled up yet um, to the Biden administration and, and given them a sense of just how effective we are at this. Hmm. No, I think I've seen there's some bemusement over the fact that West Virginia, of all states, seems to have been a trailblazer when it comes to effective vaccination, which perhaps the, the public health community would not have placed in pole position at the outset. And to the extent I understand deep in part, it is because of engaging these local independent pharmacies and, and in some cases, physicians. Is that a, an accurate reading? Yeah, I think if you look at where West Virginia falls on most public health rankings, it's not near the top. Uh, but they're number two or three in rate of vaccine delivery. And that mm. by jockeying for that top spot are also Alaska and New Mexico. And I think they've all taken different approaches. Um, and, you know, the leadership attributes it to some people say technology, some people say relationships, but it's probably a combination of the two. And what's astounding to me is that the relationship uh, – base nature of patient outreach was discounted and really not appreciated um, in the whole planning process. And that's what we do so well, which is build and sustain long-term relationships, which translate to trust. And without trust, we don't get to herd immunity. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, my, my thoughts there are, I would imagine you've got access to, you know, more trained staff, more experienced staff, um, you know, just the, the kind of administration and logistics of, of a clinic like yours versus, say, a, a pharmacy. Yeah, it's, it's a, a, yeah, it's better for the people wise. It's better. The labor market is really interesting right now uh, since COVID started, particularly in healthcare. here. If you look at government reports, it. You know, there's a lot of unemployment. People say they're job hunting, um, but there is an extremely tight uh, staffing issue at every level of every healthcare facility right now. And there are under um, there's underemployment of some medical staff at existing medical clinics because we're doing so much virtually that they could have easily been repurposed for this. But instead, what happened is by bringing in new folks to this, uh, which are the large retail pharmacies, health departments, we're all sort of competing now for the same staff. And rather than unifying our healthcare system around this and giving primary care the opportunity to sort of use this as its renaissance in our healthcare system, um, we're fighting amongst ourselves for the staff that are essential to delivering vaccine. And I think it's a, a reflection of a process that was rushed um, for good reason. Um, th it's a race against the clock to, to vaccinate people, but it could have been easily avoided and it can still be corrected quite easily. Um, with every iteration of vaccine manufacturing and delivering, you have the opportunity to make this right. Just depends on where you give that vaccine. Yeah, I think one of the, the most frustrating parts of workforce planning for us is 
we anticipated um, getting large shipments on a regular basis. And not just my practice, but every primary care practice across the country assumed that we would be the ones delivering this vaccine. So lots of time and effort spent in that process of how are we going to utilize our staff? How are we going to repurpose them? Um, how are we going to float through the patients and use these as opportunities to get patients back into preventive care, do their wellness visits and reduce the risk of mortality from other and morbidity from other chronic diseases that we know have been neglected um, during 2020. So um, frustration all around with that part of the process. Now, Deep, before we get too far down the road, now you are actively running a, a, a clinic. Um, maybe talk us through just some of the nuts and bolts of your operation uh, and and what's going on, you know, I guess now and I guess since the beginning of the year. Sure. I have the privilege of being on the leadership team of a minority-owned, relatively large independent primary care multi-specialty group in northeast metro Atlanta. Uh, For our UK listeners, Atlanta is the capital of Georgia, uh, which is in southeast United States, and a very cosmopolitan um, area with population somewhere around 5 million in the metro area. We take care of between 100 and 125,000 annual primary care visits a year. So we were really lucky that we got a shipment of vaccine when it first became available, and we have a tremendous working relationship with our local health department. Here we have state health departments, and then state health departments have districts, um, and each district has a district leader and a leadership team, and ours is just terrific. They really helped us learn about the technical parts of the vaccine uh, that I think was essential in giving us confidence to administer the vaccine. So we did a lot of training. We got our staff onboarded. We trained some of the doctors, some of the nurse practitioners, um, and we are running a few vaccine clinics across our geographic area to reach different populations. Our focus is on reaching minority populations, non-English speaking individuals, those who we know won't be able to sit in front of their computer all day and try to list themselves, or they may not have children who can do it for them, um, and really try to reach those vulnerable populations that we know need this first, both from a clinical perspective that the highest risk to become ill or die from COVID, or they're likely to infect other members of a multi-generational home. And uh, that is just knowledge that is embedded in our workflow. And how you can transfer that knowledge to a large chain pharmacy is um, a mystery still. It's going to be very difficult um, if, if it's doable at all. In that, I presume there's a combination of having those relationships so these hard-to-reach individuals are more likely to potentially come into your quarters, if you will, but equally are likely having to go into the community at some point to deliver the vaccine to them. Maybe just talk about more about how you reach these hard-to-reach populations. Well, we take care of patients in mostly suburban and rural parts of Georgia. And the way we've structured it is trying to meet patients where they are, not necessarily geographically, uh, but yes, that's part of it. But it's really also the hours and when you're available mm. to them. You know, most uh, facilities are not open on the weekend. So one of our vaccine sites, for example, in Snellville, uh, Georgia, is open on Sundays. That allows 
folks to bring their parents um, and come to that, us if they're vulnerable or elderly populations. We can vaccinate them. They can get it done in a timely manner while they're there. If they want, they can also get their blood work drawn for whatever chronic conditions they have. So we're trying to make this an opportunity to do as much as we can for these folks who have been completely isolated for the past year. And the other parts of it have to do with eventually reaching out and driving and going to those communities with mobile clinics and things like that. Those are likely going to be public-private partnerships with these county health department officials and district health officials. Um, and there's going to be a combination of, of staff and personnel that work together to identify the right patients and mobilize them, get them in a central area, let them know we're coming. Uh, we're in one of the most diverse counties in America. Um, so language is very, very important, and having a trusted voice for them is perhaps even more important. Yeah, I can't say enough how important the caller ID is. Um, when a lot of our patients get a call from X county health department or the state health department, the first reaction is put it to voicemail uh, versus a call from us or text from us or an email or whatever it is. And that's going to take months if we continue uh, doing it the way we are. So what I'm picking up on is, is, a, is a couple of themes, but one in particular is, you know, using existing infrastructure, i.e. the relationships you have. It, it, a, it just is likely then, as you mentioned, to bring individuals who have been outside in some ways of the health system for the last year back in for non, if you will, vaccinated related matters. And then second, I suppose there's a real sense, at least in the UK, that we're going to be at this vaccination game, if you will, for longer than just this first jab, you know, as the Brits would say it, that often there may actually, you know, boosters needed thereafter. So for a couple of reasons, I think there's a lot of arguments here about trying to make it more BAU, so to speak, as opposed to a one-off uh, race, as it's in some ways been coined here, where you maybe would take advantage of, of baseball stadiums or whatever it may be. I don't know, any, any sense of, I suppose I'm preaching to the choir with you deep, but any, uh, any, any sense on that? Well, I think leadership right now is asking a question, can you sprint a marathon? And my training and experience in physiology tells me probably not. Um, eventually, you're going to start to feel the strain on the people working in those systems, uh, the facilities themselves. And I'm not sure that we're going to get the follow-up and throughput that we want across the board. It's not all about the numbers, though it is. Um, it's not just how many you vaccinate. It's also who you vaccinate. Are you vaccinating those people yeah. that are most likely to die and get sick and the ones most likely to spread? Or are you just vaccinating whoever comes through the door? There's going to be a combination of both at the beginning here, but I think it's in the near term that we're going to start to try to target our vaccination. We're trying to create these hierarchies and follow them, but when you allow a retail pharmacy to get into this, they don't have the manpower, the ability to distinguish between the folks coming through the door. They don't know them. They've never met them before. And sometimes folks don't like it, but we have to tell them, look, you know, the Patient I just got off the phone with is 94 with lung disease and heart disease. That patient's going to need a vaccine before you do. Um, and it's usually well received coming from us. 
So to answer your question, I'm not a big fan of the stadium photo ops. Uh, that being said, there's probably a role for them. Um, and mass vaccination sites are going to have to be a part of this in, in certain parts of the country. And I think anybody who thinks otherwise is naive, but they're not going to be a long-term solution unless we're just doubling down and investing, creating a parallel healthcare system. Uh, there's a scenario in which I think it could work. Let's say that Johnson Johnson comes out with a single dose that's really effective, gets a lot of trust, and it's not a multi-dose vial. It's a single-dose syringe. Um, you know, Maybe you could get the throughput there like you would a flu clinic, but uh, I think we're not there yet. Hmm. That's interesting. And again, I have nothing against mass vaccination sites either. And indeed, in the UK, despite being a very much a primary care led campaign, I will say that the, the, the race courses and the other stadiums that are being used get the majority of the press. But what's always interesting to me is that the numbers they're doing, you know, at least as I've even seen in the US context, we're talking about four or five thousand, you know, you know, doses, if you will, a day, whereas a, a typical, you know, primary care practice in the UK, if it's pumping, can knock out a thousand, you know, for instance, you know, over the course of a clinic. So it just gets down from an operational perspective to one large site where you're kind of bottlenecking or multiple, if you will, smaller ones with a bit of a more smooth throughput. Sorry to geek out on the kind of delivery mechanism. It's a lost opportunity. People forget that primary care does not just mean adult internal medicine and family medicine in the United States. It's also pediatrics and gynecology. Um, and also a lot of specialty clinics deliver some form of primary care. If you have a loved one with a chronic lung disease or a chronic heart failure, they see those doctors almost every month. And there are a thousand of those across the metro Atlanta area, if not more. So even if a thousand clinics give 10 a day, that's 10,000, boom, without any additional effort. Um, and, and I have not heard a good counter argument to that. So what we're trying to achieve, how we're trying to achieve it is all going to be rate limited until we have more vaccine. But once that supply comes in, uh, why we're not augmenting our existing infrastructure is an outstanding question. And perhaps we haven't done a good job of organizing ourselves in the U.S. and presenting that case. So I think we have to look inward before we ask leadership, why haven't you come to us? And we have to make a case for how we can do this better. Though West Virginia may have made that case for all of us. <laughs> So is it really important then, you know, so much of what I'm hearing you say is it's not just the, the you know, the physicality logistics of getting people in the right place to administer these vaccines. It's actually having the right people do that. So it's the physicians that people see on a more regular basis, it's people they know or they trust or can then carry on serving them after just, you know, rather than like you say, you know, walk into a pharmacy, see pharmacist X who you've never met before. They give you a jab, you leave, that's it. This is a, this is also about having the right people administer this as a as a wider context of ongoing healthcare, so that people are you know they're going to see people they might have other conversations with, like you said, to catch other health conditions or just as part of the general health check. This isn't just you know getting a takeaway, a takeout. It's like just... there's emerging literature that pediatric vaccination rates are miserably down in 2020. So are all adult vaccinations. 
And we have the ability and the capacity to catch up all those things. Our pharmacists um, partners are working incredibly hard, but I'm not sure whether they're enthusiastic about doing this in the sense that they have a lot of other responsibilities as well. And managing these lists and these wait lists and, and all this on top of their regular work is an extraordinary ask. Um, so we have a lot of missed opportunities by not embedding this in primary care. And I think that's where we should keep our focus. Um, you know, leadership's doing the best it's can at I think at every level of government um, to make the right decisions. And there's just a lot of opportunity here that we're not realizing. And how, how much extra effort or time in shifts or work is it, is it taking to add in, you know, running vaccine clinics or administering the vaccine alongside what you would normally be doing as a, you know, as a practice, as primary care? Like what, what's the kind of extra work involved and, in, you know, in, in man and woman hours? <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of emotional, intellectual um, and financial capital involved in, in establishing these clinics. Part of it is around just handling something that has a lot of scrutiny and and um, interest in it, which is not something that we do on a daily basis. So that first month was pretty stressful, um, and it's so important to all of us in healthcare to not waste a single dose. So it took a while to learn how to use the listservs. People are using all kinds of different technology to do that. Um, you can do organic scheduling as well, which is probably – how we do it in primary care and could be done because the people who need it are the ones who we talk to the most anyways. We're doing um, – and, and so there's an opportunity for that that doesn't require as much tech. It's a low-tech solution. But um, I would say that first month was pretty stressful, yeah, uh, getting it off the ground. But now we have protocols, groups like ours, the professional societies. They can share them with folks. And you're going to – once we loosen the criteria about who all can get them in terms of age and occupation, and we start focusing more on risk, mm-hmm. um, I think it'll be much easier to work with the vials and, and the, the multiples that they come uh, and, and try to distribute those effectively without wasting any doses. But we need a little bit more flexibility from the government to do that, and, and I'm sure they'll give that once we have more vaccine. So have you had to hire any extra staff or ask for extra volunteers or are you purely working with? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. With the way we're doing it right now, which is these kind of vaccine clinics and these dedicated sessions, rather than embedding them into our regular workflow, we are scrambling for staff, scrambling for volunteers. Um, It's gotten better over the past month, but it is a strain and stress every day. Uh, that you're about to run a vaccine clinic in the next 24 hours. Uh, the other challenge is folks are signing up at 10 different wait lists to get this. And so the morning that you call them to come in or send them their message that, hey, you know, you have your vaccine appointment today, they may have gotten it an hour before at Publix or another grocery store here. So that wait list management is certainly a part of it. Um, but Morning, noon, and night are workforce here. Um, how do you staff the clinic? How do you make sure you have the right people in the right places, um, able to reach the population that you need? Deep, I believe you said at one point to me that you thought once, if you will, supply was 
online. It actually was staff that was the limiting factor for the vaccine rollout. I don't know. This just sounds like for a lot of the reasons you've discussed, but any any you know micro or macro thoughts on on that? Yeah, our our company runs most of its job ads on Monster and Indeed. And if you go to our job boards now, the competitor ad is for FEMA. Uh, so FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management Agency that's trying to set up, you know, mass vaccination sites. So you know we're 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 kind of competing amongst each other here for the same staff to do the same work, and that's probably not the healthiest way to approach this. Volunteers are a tremendous asset in everything that we do, uh, but how long can the volunteers continue? Um, is is what I think mm. this question Scott's asking, and you know I, I'm just curious from your clients, you know, how often do volunteers come? Um, usually, when volunteers come, how many shifts do they do? Is that training onboarding process um, and the investment you make is it paying off in the long term, or is it kind of a come for a session or two and leave? I think, again, that comes back to it's almost the same argument you have for um, people using primary care. I think when it's the big mass sites, it is a case of like you might volunteer once or twice and then, you know, the novelty wears off and that's it. Whereas from what we're finding with the the smaller um, PCNs in this country, which are like groups of, you know, four or five GP practices, primary care, and they're working together because it's a smaller scale operation they're getting to know their volunteers um you know there's more commitment there they kind of stay around longer because they're then part of a smaller community and they feel they really see their contribution um you know and they become part of a a a smaller scale team so they actually feel part of something whereas you know i don't know if this is the case but my take on it would be at those kind of bigger mass vaccination sites you are one of you know, a huge number of volunteers, and you may not see your contribution uh, as as keenly. So I think it's almost the same argument of having that relationship-based approach with the physicians that you almost see that relationship-based approach between the volunteers and the teams and the staff, you know, and and some of the, the PCNs we're talking with, um, you know, the, the teams get mixed up, but everyone's learning from each other. You know, they've got retired physici- uh, physicians and GPs uh-huh. coming back. They've got medical students. They've got volunteers and everyone's kind of mixing with each other, but but really forming keen, you know, focused teams that are really getting things done. So from our perspective, that's what we're seeing in terms of the volunteers actually being quite committed and, and sticking around, um, whereas, you know, perhaps that could be one of the drawbacks of the mass vaccination sites. That would be my expectation, whether it's happening, I, I don't know, but that would be my take on it. Yeah, and no, I, would, I, would, I would echo that. And maybe just to be too on brand deep, I would say that the majority of people working at these um, GP-led clinics in the UK are doing on a very part-time and flexible basis. But they're not, we're not hiring full-time people to do this. These clinics are happening for three or four hours on a Monday, Tuesday, and Saturday. And as a result, you're getting volunteers and even some, mm-hmm. as Lucy mentioned, retirees and students that are quite happy to fit in this work around their schedule. And so it's on the one hand, you know, potentially you know, less of a commitment because you are sure. obviously doing this on a part-time basis, which on the face of it, you might think would lead to more turnover, but because you're able to continue doing it 
on a recurrent basis admits to your other responsibilities, it actually means that you'll have these individuals for the matter of months uh, also supporting. So I really think, like Lucy mentioned, I think the, the good local nature of the, the work, but equally the fact that it's being done on a very part-time and flexible basis is what's leading, I think, to some success and a bit more continuity here. You know, it's incredible. Uh, it sounds like the way we run vaccine clinic mirrors what you're describing the GP clinics are doing, which are four-hour sessions three times a week. Um, and it's just interesting that that's naturally what, what we've done as well, um, obviously without consulting with any of your uh, – GP clinics in the UK. Uh, I think that just speaks to probably how it, how it integrates into existing workflow and the way that we operate in primary care. But almost always during one of these sessions, you'll have, you know, I have at the sessions I run some medical student volunteers who come from local medical schools as well as some college students from the University of Georgia who help. But there's always one or two patients who come to get vaccinated and just stick around to kind of help with workflow, help corral patients. Um, you know, everyone wants to be a part of it and they're on a first name basis with the staff. Uh, and so, you know, what we're looking for are ways to integrate these people into it in a little bit more organized way. And hopefully that will have the opportunity to do that uh, as we get more vaccine. And they'll make it maybe a little less stressful, a little more fun. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that is the the aspect of it being local, the aspect of it aspect of it being relational, and the aspect of it also being either I'd say voluntary or part time, where it does seem like people are, you know, committing, but not as if it's perhaps a full time you know role that comes with both the pros and I think a lot of the if you will the the labor associated with that. And it does mean I think there are some cases in, in the UK I know where people are working at multiple different vaccination sites, you know, in some ways spreading their availability and their their ability to support, you know, across five to six different, you know, PCNs, if it's in geographic proximity, just given the nature of, if you will, complementary scheduling, you know, throughout the week. So again, apologies if I'm being too uh, too insistent on the, the the benefits of being a bit more flexible with how you how you staff this, but just the nature of the vaccine rollout itself is dynamic. So using a fixed staffing model creates scarcity, creates inefficiency, and to me creates a lot of the the problems. Or it creates probably too strong of a word, but certainly contributes, I think, to maybe you know what I'm what I'm hearing you say. Well, I think the theme of flexibility extends to every part of this. You know, we're in such an ultra tech world where we're not even giving patients the option to sign up other than online. We want to be flexible at every single aspect of vaccination both the staffing part of it and access to vaccine. Um, and, you know, we've got to have ways for people to reach us and and get what they need and or let us know that we need to come to them. And having a local volunteer force, I imagine, would augment that our ability to do that as well. Um, you know, they're connected with the clinic. They can get folks in that need it, that meet the criteria, um, and let us know we, we have to have different access points for folks, not just a single website or a single facility, uh, it, it, the more access points we have, and I think Scott and I have talked about this offline, uh, you know, the, the brighter the sky is. Uh, particularly in America, patients like to do things their way, where they want it, when they want it. 
And this is probably not the time to force them to be conformists into a single option. And um, this is the time to step back and say, However, you want to get this vaccine, we're going to make it available to you. This is what I have um, like, you know, the pizza guy coming around and delivering you, you know, two large pepperoni and your jab. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, um, and, uh, you know, the other question that just comes up every day is what are we going to do, uh, at mass sites with People who are truly high risk or have complicated conditions that really need thoughtful vaccination. And how are we going to create, create a system that allows us to reach those people? Um, let me give you an example. For patients who are on chemotherapy or other condi- or have other conditions that require regular infusions or tablets of drugs that suppress their immune system, there requires a fair degree of communication and coordination between primary care and their specialist who administers that. Right now, those folks sort of don't have a place um, in a way to get the guidance and the confidence that they probably need in order to uh, – get vaccinated. And we, we need to establish that uh, workflow and that algorithm for the patient experience sooner rather than later so they're not lost. Again, those are our highest risk patients. That makes sense. And obviously that, again, comes back to having the right staff there. This isn't about them just being you know, part of a faceless delivery mechanism. It's being part of a, a broader uh, you know, healthcare situation. It's, it's, you know, it's something that, that needs to work together. So having the right people there. And also, I think, you know, having people there that if they want to ask other questions, I guess that's the other side of it, isn't it? It's like if a lot of people haven't been coming into, you know, the practice or to, to, to speak with their doctor, you know, this is an opportunity for them. You know, maybe they've been staying at home because they feel safer there or whatever. But this, this is an opportunity to have those conversations. You don't want them to not be able to have them. Right. And there's really no, the right person no there. place safer than the doctor's office for you to come during the pandemic. I, I mean, we're obviously following all the protocols as strictly as possible. Um, knock on wood, we haven't had any intra-office transmission at, at our practice. And, and I really haven't heard of that happening at too many places. Uh, most people are getting it outside of Mm-hmm. work or you know, same in the school system. We really haven't had any evidence of intra-school transmission. And we want this to become a situation in which everybody gets vaccinated and leaves as an ambassador of the vaccine. And that comes through knowledge, education, listening, and empowering them to get their vaccine. Yes, get their sticker and their selfie, but also leave knowing about what that was just injected into their body and why it's safe and why their loved ones need it as well. And I think we have so much opportunity to do that without changing a whole lot about the way we're operating um, with significantly less hullabaloo and stress than we're perhaps creating um, with the way that we're looking to do this over the next six months. But by the fall, this has to come into primary care. Um, almost certainly people are going to need boosters. And the more experience we get and the more records we have in primary care now, the faster that throughput's going to be. Um, and I, I'm hoping that we use every opportunity between now and then to start getting experience. 
little deep, you, you've laid out the ultimate agile challenge, which is each time we do this to do it a little bit better. So I wonder if we, we leave the conversation here, maybe with um, should should it warrant a check in in a few months time to to see if we've uh, seen any changes on either side of the pond and how things are working. And uh, hopefully and I'm, I'm confident for the better and in a more physician uh, primary care led way. Well, if you'll have me back, I'll be here. So it was a pleasure speaking with both of you. (laughs) Thank you. It was really interesting to hear how Deep's approach to staffing reflects how firmly entrenched he is in serving his community, that he's reaching out to those vulnerable and diverse groups and providing you know, more than just the vaccinations when he's setting up his clinics and going out and meeting his community where they are and having that flexible workforce in terms of time available, uh, locations they can travel to and the skills being really critical to that. And completely independently, yet following some of the exact same thinking of another of our podcast guests, Dr. Richard Berkeley, who's running primary care vaccination clinics in the UK. Deep was incredibly conscious of not stretching the goodwill of his existing staff to its limits, and also harnessing the goodwill of volunteers. Deep has also opted, as we've seen quite commonly done in the UK, to set up short shifts of four hours and has run focused clinics with the real eye towards where and when those hard to reach individuals in his practice will be able to ultimately come in and receive the shot. He's also looked to what he calls super volunteers who are really a, a great potential to both help the outreach and also you know, serve their communities as he is doing. The commonalities between Deep and Dr. Richard Berkeley show how great minds really do think alike, even if they are on other sides of the ocean. joining us for another episode of the shifts happen podcast there's more episodes where this came from with more conversations about making people powered work work better if you'd like to ask us questions or have suggestions or would like to hear a feature in a future episode do drop us a line or if you think dynamic staffing is something you'd like to explore for your own organization we're always excited to have the conversation find out more and get in touch on the hirehand.co.uk website or find us both, Lucy Whittington and Scott Irwin, on LinkedIn.